0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Topol, as you all know, is the director of the Scripps uh, Translational Institute right here. And we've had the pleasure of speaking before, but I hope you've all had the pleasure of reading his Creative Destruction of Medicine. Uh, which the best reader I might ever have met came up right before this session and asked him to autograph saying it had changed her life. Are you able to see the panoply of post-its in this book or how many colors there are? You can tell exactly how much it changed her life by the amount of time she spent reading this. And I now want to reread it and I advise you all to go to TheAtlantic.com and look at a very long Q&A we ran on the occasion of the publication of this book by David Ewing Duncan, Duncan last uh, February, I think, uh, in 2012, which is just terrific. But I also ask not only for the Wild Sox, which I didn't get the memo about, but I know that Eric had gizmos. And I, I said very anxiously when, when we arrived, did you bring any of your gizmos? And he said, yes, yes. So here he has them. So I'm going to ask you to explain them because they provide such an accessible and visual way into a lot of your ideas. What is that on your thumb? I think I can guess, but tell us. Well, okay, so
1: it's about digitizing human beings, which is what the big change is. Mm-hmm. And that could be sequencing, could be scanning, it could be these sensors, which is what this is. You make it
0: sound inhuman and menacing, whereas you advocate it.
1: Yeah, well, the point is that you can now measure anything. Uh, most of this all go into your smartphone. Here's now, of course, the iWatches and all these watches are coming about. This is a not exactly a fashion statement watch. I've only seen one uh, Google Glass tonight, by the way. I, <laughs> I did see whole, one. I thought the whole room would be full. I did see one. Uh, there's a fellow walking around with them. Uh, I was telling my wife earlier that... Uh, at some places they're known as uh, glass holes Um, but um, at any rate so um, no offense by the way to that fellow so um, you know the wearables they gotta fit in you know and so this wearable fits in because this is but you know uh, with
0: a blink of his eye he can say something so destructive about you and send it out around you say okay
1: glass destroy that guy and it probably would happen you know blink of an eye yeah it's amazing So this particular one uh, measures all your vital signs. This is basically so you don't have to be in the hospital. You just get, uh, this is heart rate and heart rhythm. You can get just by pressing on blood pressure, um, respiratory rate, oxygen in the blood, and uh, temperature. So it has all the vital signs. In fact, because it has the oxygen level in the blood, it even has something beyond what are the normal vital signs. And it gets it continuously beat to beat of the heart. And that's just one thing that we can do today. Are you uploading that now anywhere? Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all actually archived right in this mini computer. Right. But it can be sent to your phone or it could be sent to a, a hospital any, anywhere you want it to go. But that's not something that we can go and buy tomorrow or get prescribed, is well, it? Well, it's, it's right now it's for the hospital setting. That is, you know, the, the regular rooms in the hospital that you normally would have a nurse come once a shift to do the vital signs, this is a much more... Just when you finally have succeeded in going to sleep. Right, always. At that very moment. Exactly. (laughs) But the point, as you know, most crashes in the hospital occur in between those once uh, a a shift uh, visits. So that's what this is for now. But there are devices like this that are going to be truly the size of a watch for people... Uh, you know, they're being worked on now with the same type of uh, definition of vital signs that will be used uh, in any setting, you know, on the go. But
0: did you bring anything to cases that goes around an iPhone? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Oh. Yeah, right. oh, yeah. I, I asked. I was getting a little worried because this is something where the last time I saw him, I mean, you couldn't, you, he wouldn't keep that in his pocket. Yeah. So
1: show us what the case is and what it can do. Well, this is just one of this is actually is available for uh, consumers today. Right now. Right, and there's two different kinds. This is just one of them. uh, And uh, what's great about this is not only you can get the cardiogram, which I can do now. uh, You want to do your cardiogram? I don't. But thank you very much. (laughs) You're, are you worried about it? Or? I just... Okay. So anyway, you just I, your,
0: I'm going to find out I'm Neanderthal and War.
1: <laughs> you put your fingers on the
0: sensors and then... Uh, Show put, us the sensors from the back because they're very see, unobtrusive, but they're, they're, yeah. they do cover the whole width And there's the
1: a much smaller version that's just the size of the sensors, like a credit oh. card you can put in your right. wallet or, or your purse. So then you put your fingers on. It makes a circuit with your heart. Mm-hmm. And then it gets your cardiogram. And it gets a really good quality cardiogram after, after the first few beats. You can see my heart rate is 57, but it's more important that it's in sinus rhythm. So um, that's really important because then uh, people don't have to go to the emergency room. Uh, They don't have to go for an urgent clinic appointment. They can just put their fingers on the phone. And what's nice about it now is it has a computer reading of your cardiogram. And you get a text immediately saying it's normal or atrial fibrillation or whatever it is. When you say you, though, the person it's useful for is the doctor, is it not? So it's, No, it's, uh, no. I'm now getting emails from patients telling me the diagnosis of their rhythm before I even have seen anything. So then they know something's going on. So I, I got an email recently. I'm in atrial fibrillation. This isn't the subject line. Now what do I do? You know, so... That, that's so one of the points of your book is the shockingly high rate
0: of doctors in a survey was at 69% who really weren't comfortable using email or communicating with that, their patients by email, and you just want to scream at them. It is 2013, or at the time of the book it was 2012. Where are you?
1: Well, we, we have a serious problem of... Physicians, these analog doctors that are unwilling to move into a digital world, so that point about it's the same 69%, maybe not the same doctors, who refuse to give the patients the notes when they see them in the clinic, in the offices. They say, no, patients don't, don't need to well, see Well, they'll the go notes. on WebMD and second guess you, no? Know? No, the only, uh, the, okay, there's been studies to show a, a very important one called Open Notes at three major medical centers in the U.S., in Boston, Seattle, and Pennsylvania, Geisinger. And what it showed was that these physicians, they went into it not wanting to give the patients the notes. Now every patient gets their uh, clinic notes immediately after the visit, and the patients, of course, love it. But the whole thing was predicated by, oh, if the patient gets the note, they may get very upset with the things that I wrote, said. Like, for example, I, I wrote SOB. And uh, I was really trying to say they're not short of breath, and of course the patient might think something else. So this is a real problem. This is a real problem. But what was that masking? What was the real insecurity, do you think? Well, I think what it, the, it belies, a, a belies a much deeper problem, which is unwillingness to let go. That's what this is all about. It is a very um, deep-seated paternalism about Dr. Knows Best and um you know it's really like um the uh, 1400s and the high priests before the printing press the same kind of thing with the information and so that information has been all in the domain of of doctors and it's basically going to be unplugged unplugged medicine it means it's it's leaving the doctor's authority it's going right to the phone right to the tablet and whether that's the sequence or whether that's we can talk about scanning, all this stuff is going away from the doctor's control. And it's very hard for physicians, especially older ones, to accept this radical change. But
0: do you feel compelled, will you immediately say to this patient who says, I'm an AFib, now what? Will you say, here's what? Or will you say, hey, hey, show me the data,
1: what do you mean? Yeah. Right, so you will, right? Yeah, so the, the key here is we're not going to get, some Some have said, well, we don't need so many doctors anymore. That's really, I think, the wrong conclusion. But what we do need is a, need is a morphed model so that we have a partnership that's different. So the doctor is who you go to for uh, consultation advice because mm-hmm. that doctor has all this experience and wisdom and judgment so that the atrial fibrillation, okay, you got the diagnosis. You can do that without me, but you need guidance for what to do now that you finally have found out what is going on with your heart and for that for that uh, particular symptom but it's
0: not just the doctor wanting to be the zealous guardian of the information and keep that kind of medieval guild preserved it's also the idea that they want to be the guardian of the procedures and oh, yes. one oh, of yes. the things that this iPhone can do is perform an echocardiogram and you say that that is are are you about to perform an echocardiogram would you like to have one of those i really wouldn't but thank you
1: (laughs) it's too invasive (laughs) okay so so, um, i i I, I, this is actually pretty striking because it isn't uh, there is one that is a cell phone this one isn't function as a phone Mm -hmm. but it can this transducer that collects the ultrasound signal can get plugged into a regular smartphone right now it's And I see from the GE logo, I assume it is branded and in production now. No, this is out there. But you know what? Not too many physicians use this in the U.S. It's really big in places like Brazil, India, China, but not in the U.S. Is that because in the U.S. there's much more expensive equipment that carries with it a a billable procedure code? Uh, Well, you got that right about the procedure code. (laughs) So, um, okay, you're not... I don't know, what would you guess is the number of ultrasound studies done in the United States each year? I I couldn't. 125 million. Okay? Almost the indication is presence of a heart. Okay? (laughs) An appointment to see a doctor, health insurance. Well, if you're in the hospital, you're going to get an echocardiogram, and if you if you have any abdominal discomfort, you're going to get an echo, you're an ultrasound of it. You're going to, and of course, uh, women who are pregnant are getting ultrasounds all the time. So, 125 million. The average charge is about six or seven hundred dollars. We're talking about hundred billion dollars. Okay. Now, this device is the modern stethopho- stethoscope. What we have, the icon of medicine, is the stethophone. It's been around for almost two hundred years. It isn't any scope, scope. It doesn't look into anything, so it's it's a joke. It's a relic. It needs to be put aside. But it's the icon of medicine, so we have a little problem. Now uh, the place or the is Stefa Club. We need Stefa Club. We up need up a stetha Club. I like that. We need a stetha Club. <laughs> so basically, you have this device that you just pop open, and you can put a little gel on the on the. Um, transducer, and you're ready to go to look at whatever part of the body. Now, I was pretty excited to find out um, uh, recently that two things to tell you. One is in Minnesota, a health system is training all their primary care docs to do head-to-toe ultrasound for their patients. Primary care docs. And then the other thing, which is pretty exciting, is that um, at medical schools, instead of giving out a stethoscope, which they used to do, a few of them now are giving a real stethoscope, not a stethophone, to their med students the first day. But then one other thing that's really uh, quite exciting is that in uh, Ghana and in um, uh, India, midwives went for training for one day, midwives, one day how to use this, and they were told, okay, you need to diagnose five things, like placenta previa, cord around the neck, because of these five things, if you see them, then you need to get this woman... A high risk to a, a real hospital. And that has reduced the perinatal mortality uh, of about 75% in those places, just with having a, a, a real stethoscope.
0: Let's get back to the whole billable code, because one of the points that I thought you made is you consider this so much more efficient, it just takes much shorter time, it's so easy, it's so light, you can get it done right then when you need it. But doctors will be losing their fee for that service. There you go. And the overhead of their office. And the hospital. And, and the hospital, they're required. To, and you have that great phrase that I don't know how I'd never heard of it, is that doctors are, are made to look at. The system makes them look at their patients as the ATM. What's well, it's a medicine by the yard. Right. That's another pro- pro- way to put it. And yeah. by the procedure. So I yeah. assume by this exciting, is it... Minnesota that was showing the the, the head-to-toe scans, how everybody can do it. As part of the exam, no charge. Is this not because they're working uh, toward a wellness and health care, a managed care model as opposed to fee-for-service? Right. And what is the Affordable Care Act going to do? And and how can these um, devices help with
1: going away from the fee-for-service model? Well, they're a start. The problem is that the Affordable Care Act is in a different orbit than all this stuff. This is a lot of innovative stuff. And, you know, we haven't gotten into sequencing and and all the things you can do with that. But basically, the reason why it's so different is Affordable Care Act is essentially about access, uh, insurance, mandate exchanges. And so, yeah, there's a little bit about be more accountable. But it doesn't have the impetus to drive this. And so that's why I give credit to health systems that are trying to take that initiative. Not many of them are doing bold things like that. So we need much more of that. And it doesn't come uh, under the, the uh, rubric or the model of this uh, uh, accountable care organization. Uh, this, is a, this is much more aggressive than that. So it doesn't. I thought that it would be part of the ACO well, model. Yeah, but the ACO is uh, basically trying to reduce unnecessary procedures right. uh, rather than substitute new innovative uh, technology. I mean, so for example, uh, a very interesting, uh, le- just yesterday in the New England Journal, there was a study of 250 individuals who didn't have a diagnosis and they had sequencing, actually in Baylor, in Texas. And they were able to get a molecular diagnosis in 25%, and insurance paid 97% of the claims for the sequencing. How 97%. so? That's, that's extraordinarily high. Right. Now, the question is, how many centers around the country, we're doing this at Scripps, but how many centers around the country are doing the sequencing straight away, then going through this diagnostic odyssey, Whether you get one medical center to the next, you go to the Supreme Court of the medical centers, usually a million-dollar workup or more. And so there aren't any um, uh, centers that are doing this, again, as as part of this accountable care. Uh, structure, so it's a more imaginative, it's more futuristic, and it's just not part of. How do they thinking. succeed in getting
0: reimbursed for ninety-seven percent of sequencing?
1: Well, the good part is the insurers are starting to realize this is a bargain compared for the paying for these diagnostic odysseys. I mean, it's you know that the hundreds of thousands versus uh, 10, 20, It's a, it's a great bargain. So sequencing is
0: something you're a very strong advocate of, and you think it is parting, of paving the way to medicine of the future. Um, tell us some of the dramatic examples of where treatment can change based on, do you use the term personalized medicine?
1: Well, I'm not too keen on that term. Uh, as you know, we did a panel with a very, uh, Extremists at Aspen together. Uh, that term uh, can be very misleading mm-hmm. because it could mean, uh, you know, monogram stationary. It could mean concierge. It could mean a lot of things. But you know, it doesn't. It's such a hackneyed term. So I like individualized because it's anchored to the individual and it's driven by the individual. Uh-huh. And so uh, I do believe that sequencing is kind of prototypic of this individualized uh, medicine. Uh, but one future. of the most provocative things you think, and, and or you say, and part of the
0: thesis of this uh, beautifully annotated book here, is that it 's already the time has come already, and it can help treatments now, whereas I think for many of us. The whole idea of finding out you have marker genes, finding out too much about your gene, is only anxiety producing when you can't really do anything about what you're susceptible to. But you're saying, no, it's very useful for
1: individual treatment. Can you give us an oh, example? Oh, my gosh. Just today, uh, the American uh, Journal of Human Genetics, you know, a leading journal in the field, it published a study of 1,000 individuals and found that two, uh, that 2 to 4% of each of us, of our genome, has actionable pathogenic, pathologic variants. So, I mean, they're not all like uh, Angelina Jolie's uh, BRCA1 pathogenic mutation, but they're actionable, meaning that you don't have to necessarily have a big operation. You could have a a mutation that puts you at high risk for melanoma. And it doesn't mean you you can sue your doctor for telling you that you have it. Right. You, You basically can avoid the sun, or you could have a high risk for macular degeneration for leading cause of blindness. And you know there's many things that you could do to avoid that. So actionable information comes from sequencing. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing that. And the more we sequence, that is not just a scan, but the actual, the whole genome or the whole exome, which is the coding elements, the more information we're gathering, which will help each individual.
0: So you're not, do, you have a, do you have a regimen that you advocate for people's own sequencing? And I remember after oh. that panel, we were talking about people stormed you <laughs> saying, where can I get my gene sequence and what can I do with that information? Yeah. Do you have and does, has someone developed a regimen of which criteria and which data points are worth having and actionable, yeah. as you put it?
1: Well, first of all, I don't advocate getting a whole genome sequence if you're healthy. Uh, and that's, there's, at some point in the future, maybe a few years from now, when millions of people are sequenced and the price comes down from what it is today, which is, let's say, $2,500 or so, then at some point that will be worth it. You've the just mo- saved yourself 45 minutes after this session. <laughs> but but, the, yeah. but if, you're, if you have cancer, why not have your tumor sequenced and have your germline native DNA and find out what went off the track? If you have an unknown serious disease... Just going right to the sequencing is probably the best bet uh, there is to find out what's wrong. Um, Those are the two biggies. Um, Of course, there there are many other things that are emerging, like, for example, uh, having sequencing. You can sequence from uh, an expectant mother's blood sample, one tube of blood, you Mm -hmm. can sequence the fetus's genome, uh, which has all sorts of bioethical uh, issues that it brings up. I'm not recommending that, but you can do a chromosomal aberration test and find out, for example, things like uh, Downs and other uh, trisomies and things like that. But I thought, am I wrong in thinking that you've also
0: said that that kind of early detection can help treat an infant?
1: Well, now you're bringing up, this is another exciting area. You know how each baby, when they're born, these poor neonates have to go through a heel stick. Mm -hmm. And there's very little great information that comes out of that. And you could do a whole genome sequencing of babies. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, four centers in the U.S. were awarded through NIH before it was shut down. Uh, They were awarded... uh, We talked a lot about the shutdown. (laughs) They were awarded uh, tens of millions of dollars to do sequencing of neonates because a lot of things could be found out early in life rather than having to wait for months or years for these things to unfold. And they could be... Preempted if we knew straight away. So we're already moving to Q and A, and I can
0: just say please hold off asking the address of the gen- genomic sequencing place he most uh, strongly advocates. He'll tell you that afterward. Um, that's what everybody wants to know. Do we have questions, gentleman Right there. Hey there. Um, Currently, I'm going to uh, UCSDR right at the top of the hill um, for bioinformatics, specifically for the reasons for creative destruction of medicine, because I feel like there should be a bridge between the gap between technology and medicine. And you touch on both um, genomic sequencing as a way of preventing disease and a way to also you touch on the various medical gadgets in order to keep up with patients. I was wondering what you would figure would be more important and more useful to try and uh, focus like science or perhaps anybody's energies into?
1: Yeah, well, if you want to go into one area right now, you're in it. Bioinformatics, uh, this whole data science, mm-hmm. is we have a great shortage. And obviously, we're getting so much data. I mean, Larry Smarr will talk about the microbiome and all the other things that he's assayed. And the point is, it's not just the genome. It's not just the sensors and the scans, but it's all these other omics. Everything from the exposome, our environment, that we're getting, uh, quantitative information, uh, our epigenome, our proteome. So there's just so much data. And uh, in fact, that is our biggest problem. Our bottleneck right now is extracting useful information and knowledge from these massive data sets and so right now which you're in favor of analyzing oh absolutely you're really in love with big data well you know it's it's like the money ball of medicine you can really help people you you know there's just so much there that we haven't yet learned like for example when we look at a whole genome sequence only one and a half percent are genes the rest of it is uh, noise. Noise. Well, it used to be called junk DNA. Now we know it's all good stuff. Uh-huh. But we're not so good at analyzing the 98.5%. Uh-huh. So that's the kind of things that uh, we need, talented bioinformatics. We need machine learning, artificial intelligence, all that kind of stuff to get us to where we should be at this point in time. The problem is all these data scientists, they work in other areas like the finance industry and uh, you know aerospace and anything, retail, social media. But they don't work in life science, and we need them really badly. Hi. uh, Tom Lupfer from Clarity Design. With all the uh, innovation and the convergence of technology and medicine and science that's going on that we're hearing about, I worry that the FDA is going to become the uh, kind of the gatekeeper to innovation. And when you think of the name, Food and Drug Administration, nothing about devices, technology, information, processes. Would One of the best things that we should do is should we pump more money into the FDA and expect more from it so it can keep a pace? Well, that Who is, could
0: say no r- to that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a great point, uh, but we had some really bright, uh, light stuff come out of the FDA last week on this topic because they gained a ruling about how they're going to regulate mobile devices, smartphone ads, the hardware that connects to the smartphone. Uh, like the ECG or the apps, and the great part is they're they're basically not going to regulate uh, most of it. They're letting it go through, and that's a really positive step. They have uh, indeed um, very quickly um, put through sensors like the electrocardiogram, like digitized pills, where you know the person's actually the moment they actually took the pill. Um, so there's signs of, uh, and we, both of us know, Corby and I know Peggy Hamburg, who the commissioner of the FDA, she's very supportive of individualized medicine and this whole movement. And so, if you look on the Atlantic.com, which I have to say every 10
0: or so minutes, you will find, um, a speech that Dr. Hamburg made to an Atlantic event saying that one of her chief Um, initiatives at the FDA was going to be speeding up the regulation of medical devices and made clear what an enormous part of its portfolio and and not paid sufficient attention to uh, medical device regulation is.
1: Another reason why we have to get them back operational. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you, Corby. Thank you.